This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this BMJ Best Practice podcast on hypertension. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm Clinical Director at BMJ. Hypertension is common and becoming more common for a number of reasons, including an ageing population, physical inactivity and unhealthy diets. The prevalence is also rising quickly in many developing countries, particularly in urban societies. So how should we diagnose and manage patients with hypertension? To tell us, we have on the line Professor Greg Lipp, who is Price Evans Chair of Cardiovascular Medicine at the University of Liverpool and Consultant Cardiologist at the Liverpool Heart and Chest Hospital. And importantly, Greg is author of our BMJ Best Practice topic on this disease. So Greg, you're welcome. Let's start off by asking, how do we define hypertension today? Well, uh, thanks very much, Kieran. Hypertension, in terms of its definition, is certainly has evolved over the years. And the general uh, starting point is that level of blood pressure where treatment actually confers more benefit than potential harm or disadvantage. But over the years, we have recognized that hypertension is not a yes-no phenomenon because the risk in relation to cardiovascular risk is a continuum between the uh, blood pressure levels. Now, in the current European Society of Cardiology guidelines, uh, it does aim towards the blood pressure uh, for most uh, individuals to be under 140 over 90, and uh, where there's evidence of target organ damage aiming certainly to 130 over 80, especially in high-risk patients with uh, associated hypertension. So, um, in general, we blood pressure is or what is diagnosed as hypertension is a continual risk and the intervention uh, is framed accordingly uh, in those patients. And when you say target organ damage, uh, could you give me some examples of that? Uh, well, in terms of target organ damage, um, most commonly, and this is what we would assess for in the hypertension clinic, we would certainly look for evidence of uh, nephropathy, so with proteinuria, for example, or renal impairment. We would look to uh, the heart, and uh, useful screening tests may well be a simple 12-lead ECG to look for the presence of left ventricular hypertrophy. Um, and um, clearly a more sensitive way to pick up left ventricular hypertrophy or LVH is to do echocardiography. We can, of course, look at the eyes, uh, evidence of retinopathy. And if there's grade three or grade four retinopathy, this is very clearly uh, very severe hypertension. But one could also add clinical um, syndromes, which are associated with essentially target organ damage as examples patients with a stroke, patients with a a coronary disease or associated um, heart failure, and the latter, which could well be uh, heart failure uh, with preserved ejection fraction, which is commonly in association with left ventricular hypertrophy. We also recognize uh, a common cardiac arrhythmia such as atrial fibrillation probably is a manifestation of hypertension target organ damage. So the list can go on quite a lot. You can also look at mechanistic surrogates such as impaired uh, vascular function as a manifestation of hypertension induced target organ damage. 
Okay, thank you. That's very comprehensive and very helpful. Uh, And it moves us neatly on to potentially recent advances in diagnosis. Are are there any recent advances in diagnosis? Could you tell us a bit about that? Well, uh, one thing worth mentioning is that uh, the guidelines have moved towards um, improved diagnosis and monitoring. There's certainly more emphasis now in guidelines for the use of home blood pressure monitoring to confirm a diagnosis of hypertension. And that gets around the white coat effect that affects some patients uh, when, when they come up to a hospital or a clinic. There's also an increasing move towards treatments using single pill combination therapy because if we're aiming for target blood pressure so under 140 85 or 140 90 we essentially um, very often will require uh, combination drugs to try and achieve that there is also emphasis on detection of poor adherence there's also in in a, in a sense uh, emphasis with regard to management in relation to cardiovascular risk and there are differences between the european and the american guidelines i should point out uh, the american guidelines published in 2017 do push towards an even lower blood pressure target uh, for everyone to be under 130 over 80. okay and to go back to 24-hour blood pressure monitoring who should have 24-hour blood pressure monitoring or should it be everyone 24-hour blood pressure monitoring is clearly a a better way to make a diagnosis of hypertension and also, uh, in a sense, it recognizes the fact that all of us, our blood pressure does vary throughout the day. And what we are essentially looking for is the blood pressure load in the particular uh, individual. And in terms of 24-hour blood pressure monitoring, certainly uh, I would be using that in my specialist hypertension clinic. But then again, this is a simple enough test that one can actually uh, use even in primary care. The interpretation is important. You, you certainly would look at the average daytime uh, blood pressures and, and with 24-hour uh, ABPM, we are looking for some um, a target essentially under 130 or 80 is what we're looking for with the average daytime. And the nighttime there usually is dipping in as a normal physiological phenomenon. If there's non-dipping, these patients usually tend to, uh, again, have a, a bigger blood pressure load and has an association with uh, evidence of hypertension, target organ damage that we talked about. So this is a this is a test that is uh, I personally feel is very useful and um, in initial diagnosis, also in monitoring and also in assessing patients for a white coat effect or white coat hypertension. Okay, thank you. And when would you suspect white coat hypertension? If we see in patients where they come to the outpatient clinic uh, in the hospital, or a GP has certainly recorded high blood pressures. Sometimes, and not uh, all the time, um, an associated tachycardia, fast heart rate. These patients um, usually volunteer, they have an anxious or uh, nervous disposition. When you do a 24-hour blood pressure monitor, you can certainly see that the first few readings after the blood pressure uh, device is put on, there's a relatively higher blood pressure recordings and also high heart rate then as the day progresses uh, when they're out doing their normal activities or gone back home uh, the blood pressure sort of settles down and the the heart rate also settles down 
And uh, the other thing that I also look for in a diagnosis like this is as the patient's coming up to the, the time when they have to return the device, their blood pressure starts to creep up and also the heart rate creeps up as well. It's quite an interesting pattern. But the 24-hour ABPM, I think, is very useful in this situation because you, you get an idea of the overall blood pressure load. And as mentioned before, you know, all of us, our blood pressure does vary throughout the day and it gives us a good indication about what the hypertension load is on the patient and the associated uh, evidence of target organ damage. Okay, thank you. Let's move on to pitfalls specifically in diagnosis. What are common pitfalls in diagnosis, would you say? Well, um, maybe as a starting point is um, is perhaps over-diagnosing white coat hypertension. Maybe it's worth flagging up that these patients are not absolutely normal. They will require just some monitoring and or uh, maybe even lifestyle changes. Because if you look at some of the studies comparing overt hypertension versus white coat hypertension and essentially normal blood pressure or normal tensive, uh, white coat hypertensive do show some uh, very minor or intermediate changes between normal tension and overt hypertension. So we shouldn't really be too readily uh, labeling somebody as white coat hypertension because they are not entirely uh, normal. With regard to uh, other pitfalls, I think it's important to stress that when we assess a patient for hypertension, we should clearly look for evidence of target organ damage, uh, check the renal function, certainly look at the eyes and for retinopathy. An ECG is a very useful initial screening test, but in doubts that might need to be uh, further investigated. Checking some simple lab values can give you an indication perhaps of an underlying secondary cause. Uh, for example, low potassium may flag up the, some alarm bells, whether or not there's an underlying uh, CONS syndrome, for example. These are very simple screening initial tests, particularly so in the younger hypertensive patient, uh, where we should be more vigilant for evidence of secondary uh, hypertension. Okay, thank you. Now, moving on to management and, and recent advances in management. You mentioned combination drugs. Um, uh, any other recent advances? I suppose the starting point is that we recognize that combination drugs and drug therapies work in combination with lifestyle changes. It's important to stress that this is really part of the holistic approach to managing patients with uh, hypertension. So not only do we start drugs, we also recommend the lifestyle changes. For example, uh, weight reduction, cutting back salt intake, regular exercise, a healthy diet, and uh, a reduction in alcohol consumption. Apart from that, uh, I think is to use drugs in a sensible manner. European guidelines um, and the UK NICE guidelines certainly suggest uh, using the ACD algorithm where depending on age and ethnicity determines in a sense your, your choice of initial drug and then to think earlier about using in combination there's also a greater prominence now to use mineral corticoid receptor antagonists such as spironolactone as a add-on drug to try and improve uh, blood pressure management. Now, there are other non-drug techniques that have been advocated, but we're, we're really are still at a stage of 
looking at um, sometimes also conflicting data and of course new technologies also arise and what I refer to are things such as renal denervation therapy. Uh, this is on highly selected uh, groups of patients and some of the initial trials, although promising, then when they actually did a, a controlled trial, didn't really show a significant benefit. And then a more recent study with very selected patients and different technology, there was a suggestion of benefit. So I think we're still in a bit of evolution with the non-pharmacological approaches to, uh, or interventional approaches to treating hypertension. There's also new devices that are in very early stages about, uh, for example, a coil that is placed near the carotid bodies that control um, autonomic function and the blood pressure. And that seems to, again, have an effect on blood pressure. So we're getting into interventional procedures being pushed or promoted as a potential, perhaps in the future, to have an alternative strategy for treating uh, especially resistant hypertension. Okay, thank you. And and back to drugs. The, you mentioned the acronym, I think it was ACD. Uh, can you tell us what that stands for? Well, the A stands for ACE inhibitors or ARBs, and uh, C is for calcium uh, channel blockers, and D is for diuretics. As a general principle, uh, younger patients, they respond well to uh, ACE and ARB, so it will be appropriate to use the A as the initial choice in those as the first step in those patients. In older patients or Afro-Caribbean patients with hypertension, they would respond better to either a calcium blocker, uh, that's the C, or a diuretic, which is the D. Then with the second stage with combination therapy is uh, usually A plus C or D, and then you go A plus C plus D, and then as mentioned after that, you think about adding in this, um, a mineral corticoid receptor antagonist like spironolactone. So it's to have a rational approach to adding drugs in a sequential manner to have both synergy and uh, ultimately achieve good blood pressure control. Thank you. That's very helpful, very clear. Uh, let's on, move on to pitfalls in management. What, what are the pitfall, common pitfalls that you see in management? It's quite a long list. I do get patients referred up to my hypertension clinic with the referral basically saying that this patient is unresponsive to uh, multiple drugs. Just to give some examples, um, it would be, say, an Afro-Caribbean patient, elderly Afro-Caribbean patient with hypertension, uh, and hypertension is very prevalent in the Afro-Caribbean community. And they are on, for example, an, a low-dose ACE inhibitor and a microscopic dose, and also a low-dose beta blocker at a microscopic dose. And Afro-Caribbean hypertension doesn't respond that well to ACE inhibitors and uh, or beta blockers because of the low renin state in this uh, group of patients. It would have made more sense to start off as with the guidelines to have a calcium channel blocker and then adding in the ACE inhibitor and uh, a diuretic, which then overcomes some of this uh, initial uh, resistance to treatment. Another pitfall is making or putting in uh, drugs in combination that are not necessarily synergistic to each other. I gave some examples with the ACD um, algorithm mentioned before, which is used in the NICE guidelines and the European guidelines, where there's synergy in terms of blood pressure reduction with an ACE or ARB, that's an angiotensin receptor blocker or ACE inhibitor, together with a diuretic. Uh, there's also a degree of synergy with a calcium channel blocker. 
However, an, an ACE inhibitor and a beta blocker are not necessarily that synergistic when working together. So these are is to try and have sensible combinations when you when you add uh, drugs together. Another pitfall is not appropriately assessing the patient for evidence of target organ damage. And now, as mentioned earlier, when we are using spironolactone as um, a, a pretty effective add-on treatment, certainly in the, in the hypertension clinic, I would like to know the renal function because you will be a bit cautious about adding in spironolactone to patients with moderate to severe uh, renal impairment because you certainly need to monitor the kidney function more carefully. I personally would not use spironolactone in somebody with uh, severe renal impairment anyway. So it's to assess for uh, hypertension target organ damage, including ECG and cardiac scanning if that is suspected. Furthermore, also uh, renal function and as part of the workup. Biochemistry may also give an indication about uh, whether there's a secondary cause of hypertension. Another group of patients commonly referred to my hypertension clinic are the young hypertensives. And uh, it's important again to think about secondary causes of hypertension. For example, young women uh, and the oral contraceptive pill, we would pick up the occasional patient with a young patient with hypertension, that is, uh, with a coarctation of the aorta. This is where they um, classically will have upper body hypertension. There's evidence of radiofemoral delay um, in, the, in the pulse. These patients occasionally slip through the net and then they present at the uh, hypertension clinic. So it's to think about in younger patients, um, vascular or congenital abnormalities and other secondary causes of hypertension. Okay, thank you very much. That's that's really helpful. Um, What have we missed? Are there any other common questions you get asked by doctors about this disease? Uh, And what are the answers to those questions? The other clinical service I lead is atrial fibrillation. And um, as it happens, atrial fibrillation and hypertension are very common buddies. Uh, In fact, on a population basis, hypertension is the most common predisposition to atrial fibrillation and it's important in the hypertension clinic or in or in healthcare professionals looking after hypertension patients it is your opportunity to uh, when they come for their checkups to feel the pulse and if it's irregular you can confirm a diagnosis of atrial fibrillation with an ECG and why do I say that because atrial fibrillation is uh, commonly asymptomatic and uh, when the patient comes for a blood pressure check it's ideal to uh, actually just simply measure a pulse or these days some of the blood pressure machines that also pick up an irregular pulse because if management or is instituted early we may well be able to prevent a devastating stroke or heart failure in the patient who has developed atrial fibrillation. Now in terms of the hypertensive patient developing atrial fibrillation Individually, the risk of stroke is higher, and in combination, the risk of stroke is even higher, almost about twofold. So uh, stroke prevention is necessary, and um, stroke prevention in patients with atrial fibrillation in association with hypertension, well, it's anticoagulation therapy to reduce stroke, but also importantly, to have proactive management of the uh, blood pressure. And there are certainly some uh, some observational data suggesting that the ideal target for a uh, blood pressure for a patient with atrial fibrillation should be under 130 over 80. So in other words, consistent with what I mentioned earlier about atrial fibrillation being 
a manifestation of hypertension, target organ damage. So that's clearly one uh, area that I think we uh, need to have a greater awareness, greater detection, and then we can institute treatments that can reduce uh, the burden of stroke uh, in the population. Okay, thank you very much, Greg, and thanks to you all for listening. We hope this, this has been helpful, and we hope that you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign in to BMJ Best Practice and look at the content on this and other common diseases. Thank you once again. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and rate us on iTunes.